This Slate spoiler special is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILERS. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Snowpiercer, the new adventure story from the Korean director Bong Joon-ho. Adventure story, is that safe to say? Sci-fi thriller, something like that? Well, we'll talk about Sci-fi allegory? All the genres that this is and isn't as we go along. The voice you hear is Forrest Wickman, a writer for Slate. Hello, Forrest. Hey, Dana. So one reason I wanted to have you in on this one is that you are a big Bong Joon-ho fan and a completist. You've seen all five of his features. I've seen all of his features. He's done a lot of shorts, including some lengthier shorts and parts and serials and stuff, which I'm excited to check out. But uh, yeah, all of his features. And I, I basically love all of them. Yeah, I think I do too, although I would say probably that this is my least favorite of his movies I've seen so far. There's there's one other that I haven't seen, unlike you. Um, but that's that, that's a high bar to set in the case of this particular director because he's so interesting and varied and so all over the place. So let's really briefly set up the history of his career before we get into Snowpiercer. Yeah, his first movie was Barking Dogs Never Bite, which came out in the early 2000s, I think, which is more of a comedy. I think his movies have become sort of very generally speaking, less comedic as they've gone along, or at least Snowpiercer is probably his least funny movie, um, though it has moments of humor, um, which is a sort of smaller budget movie. And then he did Memories of Murder, which uh, is kind of the Zodiac of South Korea that came out before Zodiac. It's right. similarly based on a true story, and uh, the mystery is unsolved at the end. Um, and it's about kind of two detectives who become very obsessive about it and sort of lose their lives to the story. So it's very similar and really great. And, and it, much more comic, we should say, than, than Zodiac also. I mean, that's right. that's the strange thing that he's somehow able to do is, is fold this sometimes very broad physical comedy into these genre detective stories or whatever genre he's working in. Yeah. I mean, it seems very bold to inject so much humor into a movie about like a true life murder, but he pulls it off. Even in this movie, there's this great moment where there's like a horribly brutal fight scene. And right in the middle of it, Chris Evans slips on a fish. He slips on a fish and there's like a pratfall. Yeah, it's really it's really great. Um, Next came uh, the host which came out in about 2007, I 2000, think. Well, in the U.S. it did. I think it was 2006 right. in Korea. And it's and the, and the host was sort of his first huge international hit that had some non-Korean actors. It was still a Korean story and, in fact, sort of an allegory about pollution in Korea. Yeah. But he essentially turned an old-style Godzilla movie into, you know, this contemporary political fable. The host is another great, great movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it was also a huge blockbuster. I think it may have been the highest grossing movie in South Korean history at that point. And that's part of what I really love about this director is he's super interesting and, and kind of makes art films in a way, but also genre films that, like, you know, everyone that sees them really loves, I think. Um, Memories of Murder did really well, too. And then so he followed that with uh, Mother, which is maybe my favorite of all of, all of his movies, um, in 2010, and, and Mother is sort of a domestic—it also contains um, a murder mystery right. within it. But it's sort of this domestic drama between this overly invested mother and her possibly simple-minded, possibly yeah. murdering son. And I agree, Mother is, is, is fantastic. Talk about taking genre to all kinds of bizarre places. Mother does that beautifully. Yeah, that's his movie. It's kind of his most Lynchian movie, too, which is there's a there's a there's like some Tarantino in Bong Joon-ho. There's some kind of like Chris Nolan, Christopher Nolan in him in this movie. And then there's a lot of of Lynch that's kind of very fun to see in that in that movie and in small parts in this. So now we've worked our way up to Snowpiercer and Snowpiercer is a very unexpected direction to veer in, even for somebody who's done so many different things, because it's 
it's uh, it's really a blockbuster in a way, right? Mm-hmm. It's this it's this huge um, epic story that takes place on a moving train that circles the Earth one time per year. In his conception of it, it's based on a French graphic novel. Right. It's also about a train circling the Earth, but that I think has been essentially hollowed out by Bong and turned into a completely different story. Um, and yeah, how do we set up this bizarre world that this movie Snowpiercer takes place in? It's a future apocalyptic world in which the Earth is entirely frozen over. Apparently, as the result of some attempt to combat global warming. Yeah, they they did one of these things where they released a bunch of chemicals into the atmosphere, which is you know, which is something that sometimes people will refer to as like, oh, we don't need to worry about CO two because we can just put other chemical other gases into the atmosphere and it'll cure it. Yeah, and that'll lower work. the temperature again. And this movie's view of that is very extreme, which is that you know we would mess it up so badly the entire Earth would become frozen. So yeah, the train is basically the arc, and it's very has a very kind of stratified class system. And so we start out. It, the, the structure of the movie is very simple in that we start out in the caboose, and we move all our, you know, the, we move our way to the front. Um, and that moving forward is really explicitly throughout the movie connected to you know the idea of social caste and moving up in sort of lifestyle as well as, right. as moving up through the train, because of course it's the fancy people who live toward the engine of the train and the proles who live at the back. So let's introduce the characters that we meet in the caboose at the beginning and then start tracing them up, upward on their, their journey. The, the lead of the kind of rebel gang that gets together over the course of the movie and decides to try to take the engine back uh, is, is um, Chris Evans' character, Curtis, who I didn't recognize for the first 20 minutes of the movie. Oh, really? Chris Evans. He looks so completely different. I knew Chris Evans You don't Evans remember him it. from our favorite movies, Captain America? Exactly. I've only seen him as Captain America. I've only seen him, like, looking good, you know, like yeah. buff yeah. And, and airbrushed. And so to see him kind of, you know, as this rundown rebel, it took me a while. To, to place him. Yeah, and, and you know, he comes off as a pretty bland actor most of the time, and yet I find myself consistently liking him and consistently finding that he makes a lot of really good choices. Those Captain America movies, this movie, which is an interesting one, you know, Scott Pilgrim, things like that. Um, so I've come to really like Chris Evans. So he's a reluctant leader as this as the movie begins, right? And he is taking his advice from Gilliam, the character played by John Hurt, who I suspect must be named for Terry Gilliam, although I haven't specifically read that anywhere. This movie has such a Brazil vibe sometimes yeah. that Gilliam has to be one of the influences. Yeah, I had the same thought. It must be. And so John Hurt is kind of a Yoda-like figure, right? He's this old guy. He only has one arm for a reason that we'll learn later on. And uh, and he just dispenses advice, essentially, on how this takeover is going to work. It's also implied, or I guess outright stated, that there's been a previous attempt to take the train that resulted or in several, disaster. At least one, right? Because yeah. they look out at one point and see the frozen bodies of these people who, who right. tried to escape. So every previous attempt to either overturn the train's social structure or escape the train has resulted in total disaster for the rebels. So there is this kind of sense of, you know, the, the charge of the 10,000 or whatever, that there's something kind of hopeless and yet noble about this quest. Um, who else did they take along on so their there's, journey? So there's uh, Chris Evans, Curtis's sort of second in command, who's played by Jamie Bell. Um, there's a mother played by Oct- uh, Octavia Spencer, who gets to sort of kick ass later in the movie, which is fun to see. And it's not in a like, oh man, girl power kind of way. She just kind of She's very matter of fact. Yeah, one of yeah. the militia. She like uh, makes fun of all the skinny boys and then starts kicking ass. Um, I think those are the main people in the caboose. And then we sort of slowly get to know this world from back to front. So the kind of first uh, member of the front classes that we meet, uh, the, the first class is um, Tilda Swinton. Who, uh, who is plays... sent back as kind of a representative right. Right, of the of the one percenters in the front. 
Yeah, and I mean, we should really talk about her because she's one of the best. She's not actually, she doesn't have a huge role in this movie. I expected a somewhat bigger role, but she pretty much steals the movie. Yeah, she's kind of the intermediary bad guy. Yeah, yeah, just describe her whole look. So which she is a has huge part these of her character. huge teeth, which seem obviously fake, and then we find out later in the movie that they that they are fake, that she keeps kind of licking, um, and she has, I don't know, what else? She always has these huge glasses. She's just like a very exaggerated figure. She's wearing a fake nose, I believe, too. Right. And she has this kind of terrible Yorkshire accent. I mean, maybe it's a really good Yorkshire accent, but it's an awful-sounding, kind of strangly, lispy voice, which apparently she modeled after her nanny when she was a child. I guess she had a nanny that she hated when she was little, and this woman was from Yorkshire, huh. and she's channeling all of her hatred into her this, this characterization of this villain. Yeah, she seems to, as an actress, Tilda Swinton seems to kind of have a very sick sense of humor, which is, it struck me at some point, kind of exactly what Bong Joon-ho's sense of humor is. So I really hope they continue to work together because I think they would just like make great collaborators. Well, in general, this was something I tried to get into my review and I wasn't able to wedge it in. So I'll say it now. But I feel like this cast performs as a real ensemble, you know, mm-hmm. because of this thing that, that Bong does, which we'll get to, of picking off characters at random. He really doesn't obey Hollywood rules of when a character's arc is over. He'll just kill somebody off at random. So we lose some important and beloved characters fairly early in the movie. And given that he does that, I mean, there's a lot of of arcs that you could argue were kind of truncated and cut short or relationships. But because this cast works together so well as an ensemble and they all seem to be on the same page with this strange thing the director is doing, I I found that all of that kind of worked. I never sort of felt like I didn't know who that character was, even if they didn't spend long on screen. Yeah, it really worked for me, too. And another kind of notable thing about this movie is that so the movie is a co-production, a Korean-American co-production with, I guess, like Harvey Weinstein and then like the South Korean government invested some money in it i'm gathering that from the credits um, and it was shot in prague strangely at least oh wow. it was. okay yeah it seems like it's like mostly on sets the cgi outside of the train is a little, a little dodgy uneven. sometimes yeah um and the cast is extremely international and this is the kind of thing we're seeing more and more like i saw the new transformers movie this week which takes place kind of half in america and half in china and or in, in hong kong um and it really works for this movie, I think. Like, it doesn't, because of the premise, it does not, it's not forced at all. And uh, there's not a kind of, like, very, very stereotypical approach to the, you know, different characters and their nationalities the way, the way there is in a lot of these movies, like in Pacific Rim, too, falls into a little of that. Um, well, in fact, there's a lot of playfulness with with the idea of multiculturalism and, and multilingualism. For example, when the South Korean character played by Song Kang Ho, who we'll talk about in a minute, who you know becomes a, a major force in the, with the with the rebels, when when he first appears, he doesn't speak any English, but he carries around this little translation device that he holds next to his throat that speaks his voice in a female voice. And I just sort of I loved the way that that played with you know both gender and nationality, and just casually incorporated that into the movie. Yeah, I had this feeling of why haven't I seen that? Must have been in movies before. This Although there is a question, thing. if he's one of the broke, you know, inhabitants of the tale, like, why does he have this fancy translation device? I don't know if he's supposed to have smuggled it. Well, he's sort of in the middle, right? Like, so he's designed the, as they try to make their way forward, he's the one who's kind of designed the different gates, I think. He he worked on security, as I recall, and so he knows how, how to open them all. Um, but he's being and, kept in this strange car that's almost something in between a jail and, like, cold storage for humans, right? right? Although I think maybe he's doing that somewhat deliberately. I was actually unclear on this, and I'm curious. Maybe you figured this out more. It looks like a morgue, right? It looks like cold storage, as you said. But in those drawers, there 
I think they're hallucinating, right, using this drug that's part of this world called Chronol. And it seems like maybe it's kind of like a sensory deprivation tank, and he's just been in there hallucinating right. as a way to escape this kind of horrible future. But and, he chose to was, go into that drawer? Or he I just thought maybe. I was, it, I, was, I was not sure. Um, but that might have been my own, my own failing. So that's, that's sort of the next big plot point in the story. After they've moved up through two or three cars with gory battles, you know, at every, every division, because all these cars are heavily guarded by armed guards. Although we do find out later that most of the armed guards don't have bullets in their guns because bullets have long ago run out in this They've become extinct, world. as they right? say. They, there's a lot of talk of things becoming extinct in this movie, like cigarettes have become extinct. Right. And there's the, that great moment where Chris Evans gets to smoke the very last cigarette right. on Earth. So, but, so they, they make it to that car with the cold storage. They pull the uh, the Song Kang-ho character out of his drawer, along with his daughter, who is even more pathetically addicted to this chronal substance, these kind of like industrial waste products that you can sniff and get high. And so these two are kind of these renegade figures from the margins of the train, right? They're not from the front or the back, and they're not particularly invested in the the revolutionary project of the, the tail enders. They just want their chronal, and they kind of, you know, go along for the ride. Yeah, they seem to, we, we come to see in the end, this is maybe jumping ahead, maybe getting to big spoilers, but they kind of represent a third worldview in this this movie. There's kind of, so there's the people from the caboose who kind of want to, you know, seize the means of production and redistribute all the wealth. There's the people in the front who, you know, believe in this class system. There's the long speech from Tilda Swinton in which she keeps saying that everyone needs to be remain in their place. Everything needs to be in its place. Right. I am the head and you are the foot. There's right. this body metaphor that she keeps using again and again. Which she uses with this great image of putting somebody's uh, shoe on their head in right. a very sick way. It's a great kind of sick moment of humor. And um, and then they are these people who just kind of don't care about the whole battle. And eventually we learn they just want to get off the train, basically. They just want to, like, blow everything up and and start over. So they're, like, sort of anarchists or something. All right. I'm going to pause for just a moment for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off your purchase, you can visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code SPOILER at checkout. The service is simple and easy to use. They offer a wealth of beautiful designs and drag-and-drop content, and they have 24-7 support through live chat and email. The plan started $8 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for one year. Yeah, I should say I actually needed to design a website recently. And the first thing I thought of was Squarespace because I listened to all these podcasts and several other podcasts on, on which Squarespace advertises. And so that's what I knew. But I was like, OK, but I'm not just going to go with the advertising. I'm going to do some searching around, see what people actually say are the best sites. And it turned out that for me, Squarespace actually made the most sense. And it was very easy. And the site looks good. And I was happy with it. So, so. these talking points, they're for real. They're for real. You can start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code SPOILER to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for the spoiler special. We thank Squarespace for their support. So in this middle section of the movie, or maybe you'd call it like about two-thirds of the way through or so, when they finally break out of these these dark windowless cars where they've spent their, their whole lives gnawing on, you know, protein blocks that are produced for them by the, the front of the train, um, we, we get this visual break and suddenly the look of the movie completely changes and the design completely changes. And I wanted to talk a little bit about those middle cars when they start to discover the ecosystem of the train and how it functions. Yeah, I mean, this movie is basically a bottle movie. It all takes place on a train. And I worried watching the trailer that it was just going to be really 
claustrophobic and monotonous and it feels that way and I think a deliberate way for the first 30 minutes or so when we're just stuck in the back. Although it is an inventive design of the back. I mean, even the, the, yeah, the grubby dim right. cars don't look oh, yeah, like the typical apocalypse tube, you know? Yeah, I wasn't bored. I mean, there's still great world design even in the sort of drab back end. But then we move, it, it, it becomes an extremely colorful movie in a way I really enjoyed. Probably most so in that we get to see what the school is like in this sort of post-apocalyptic society and it's all this propaganda we haven't even mentioned that uh, it's all r- ruled over by this engine designer who's named what is it, is Wilford. it Wil- Wilford right who's a mysterious figure we only hear like snippets of his voice and they have they play all this propaganda um, there's like a sushi card it kind of has everything that you would need you know for a society to thrive. What other cars are there? Oh, there's a spectacular aquarium car right. that's sort of essentially like a, a – they're sort of surrounded by a fake ocean, right, with all these these fish swimming in it. And Tilda Swinton explains how, you know, there's this, this ecological balance being kept by eating fish only at a certain time of year. That's why they get the sushi because it's New Year's Day, and that's something else that becomes important in this, in this story. I think the reason that he decided to make the train circle the earth exactly once per year is that the train then becomes like a clock and a calendar, right? right? So they sort of know that every New Year's Day they're going to go across this particular bridge and – you know, see these particular sites, and that all becomes part of the story. We should maybe, but just before we move on, talk about the battles as well, because it sounds like the kind of thing where, of course, that just has to get old, like another battle in every car. And yet he finds enough ways to mix things up that I found it consistently interesting, both in that he's just a pretty good action film filmmaker, but also he does things, you know, like there's a night vision sequence, um... What else is there? Well, there's a really, really intense axe battle, right, where they make their way right. through a car. I'm not exactly sure how this battle works because it's essentially just, you know, two groups of people armed only with axes and knives, like hacking away at each other in a room. I'm not sure how they don't all end up dead, but a few of the rebels actually make it through. And then and then there's like a there's a shootout um, between train cars as the train is going. It's very inventive. The train is going around a bend and two of the different characters are both in glass cars and kind of shooting at each other through bulletproof glass. They have to shoot through the holes. And, and you know, that was great and not quite like anything I'd seen before. So I, I don't know. I, it, did you were you consistently entertained by the different battles or did you find it got like a little... I mean, the, the battles are definitely different from each other, but there still is a good 15 to 20 minutes of the movie where nothing happens except, you know, hacking of yeah. various bodies. And I probably did find that the slowest part of the movie. But then it was followed by, I think, one of the best parts, which, as you were saying, is them exploring, you know, breaking through, seeing light for the first time in their lives, some of them, or many, many years. It's 18 years they've been on the train, I think. And... And, you know, discovering those new visual worlds, that part was really, really cool. But I want to get to the ending so we can start spoiling, which to me was a slight disappointment just because I was so loving the movie up until that point. So when they do finally make it to the engine, they discover Wilford, who, to our surprise, is played by Ed Harris in a paisley bathrobe. Um, And he's this very sort of casual, I don't know how you describe him. I mean, he's he's worshipped as if he's this Mao-like leader, but then he just sort of seems like this very friendly guy in a bathrobe. Yeah, he kind of presents himself as the ultimately practical person. He's the one person that saw that the world was going to freeze freeze over. And then to our surprise, he's just – he comes off as completely reasonable. We should say that earlier in the movie, there's a moment where the John Hurt character, Gilliam, tells um, Curtis, the hero, that if he ever gets to the front of the car, he needs to cut out uh, Wilford's – tongue before he ever says anything. So we do have the sense that he's an extremely persuasive person and, 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 and like probably in a kind of devilish 
you know, d- King of Lies kind of kind of way. I forgot that the John Hurt character said that, and that helps to answer a question that I had for you. Since we're spoiling, like I can ask you this question now. It's 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 really the kind of question that I suppose was maybe meant to be left ambiguous, but I still want my own answer to it, which is: Is it true what Ed Harris says at the end about the John Hurt character having been in cahoots with him all along? Right? He says that Gilliam, in fact, you know, is is collaborating with me, and that he knew that this rebellion was going to happen, and a certain number of people would die. Seventy four percent is the number that they had decided. Right? We're going to purge. And that it was just a measure of population control, essentially, for the back of the train, which is, of course, exactly what Ed Harris would say in order to demoralize Chris Evans, who's now made it to the front of the train. But I I just wanted to know that it wasn't true because I liked Gilliam so much. Is it possible that he was lying? It seems to me just on one viewing to be ambiguous. Like, I I think it may also just be kind of a mixed uh, a mix of those things. So Ed Harris does have knowledge of uh, Gilliam that he wouldn't have you wouldn't think unless they really had been talking or maybe but maybe he just has great surveillance so there's like the possibility that he's just made the entire thing up had great surveillance so he knew all of this there's the sort of alternate possibility which is that um everything he says is right and then there's a sort of maybe middle possibility where uh maybe they did sort of work together but you know on the sly gilliam just did want curtis to win and and uh curtis and the uprising do get farther than uh, Wilford ever expected them to get and and farther than they were ever supposed to get. So maybe they kind of knew it was coming, but it, does this is this completely stretching it? Is that is that possible at all that, like, they were in talks with each other, but, you know, uh, Gilliam was sort of more quietly undermining him? Right. That's another possibility that occurred to me that I have no idea whether it's, you know, legitimate or not. Right. But, I, I mean, I think the ending of this movie... Which which we should get to, which is that, you know, ultimately uh, the Curtis character is kind of tempted to become the new uh, Wilford, which is something that's offered to him um, by Wilford. And yet, you know, our, our maybe our sympathies switch. I don't know who your sympathies were with in the final scene, um, but we learn that it's become a little bit warmer outside and so then, the, at least that's the theory of the Song Kang Ho character. I right? think we, I think it's confirmed in the end when we see the polar bear. So there is some life outside, and also they just seem to not freeze over as quickly as they would expect. Like they, they get farther than those seven people, seven popsicles who we saw earlier in the movie, who could only get like a hundred yards. So there are a few revelations late in the movie that really change the way you think of some of the characters, including the Curtis character. I want to talk about that conversation, the the big conversation that uh, Curtis has with the Song Kang Ho character the Korean engineer, as they're just about to burst through to the engine and Chris Evans is smoking the last cigarette on Earth. Yeah, so he's really been a, a pretty perfect hero so far, and we're, we're all with him. And then we learned that when he first got on the train, when he was, I believe it's 17 years old, uh, there was no food for the people in the back, and they were all cannibalizing each other. And he, uh, we come to learn, was part of this and you know killed a woman in order to eat eat her and was then going to kill her baby until Gilliam came on and sort of cut off his own arm. That's right. And so, so Gilliam, arm. by sacrificing his own arm so that people could eat it, kind of started this, I mean, essentially a culture of sharing and helping, right, right. rather than just, just pure depravity in the, in the back of the train. And we also learned that Curtis tried, a bunch of people started cutting off their arms, and Curtis tried and, and couldn't go through with it. He couldn't do it. So that was like, that was his weakness and the thing he needed to overcome. I mean, that moment is, even as, as traumatic backstories 
go, that moment is pretty harsh. Like the line that Chris Evans says about, I learned that babies taste best. It's yeah. really, really grim. And so it, it sets him up for a big redemption, right? I mean, suddenly we realize that he's got a massive kind of trauma to redeem himself for. And that also makes his final sacrifice, which we might as well get to because we're at the end of the movie now, when he reaches down into the engine, the kind of gears, the grinding gears of the engine to help rescue this boy, which is Octavia Spencer's son, who was abducted with a bunch of other kids at the beginning of the movie for unknown reasons. It turns out that it's this kind of Dickensian setup where there's yeah. child labor running the train because they're the only people small enough to fit in these engine rooms. And, and so so the fact that his arm gets ground off by the gear kind of brings brings justice at last, right? He's finally sacrificed an arm the way Gilliam did in order to save a child. Yeah, and to me this is one of the most interesting things about the movie is, is that sounds, I mean, the idea of using a child as like a cog in this machine sounds like comic book evil and we sort of expect that this Wilford character is going to be comic book evil. But then on the other hand, it's not at all a straw man because if he pulls this kid out, the whole train, which contains all of the remainder of humanity, is going to stop running and the assumption is that everyone would die, right? So I, I'm curious what where your sympathies ended up at the end of this movie because I came out uh, feeling not completely sure and needing to think about it for a while um, in, in what I felt like was a really interesting way. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it essentially ends on two possible visions of what revolution could be. There's what Curtis wants to do and what we've sort of been cheering for throughout the entire movie, which is this Marxist idea of seizing control of the means of production and we'll just distribute things more fairly and we'll have a fairer train. But the Korean characters, the security expert and his teenage daughter, have other ideas. They want to get off the train entirely and try this experiment of going back into the frozen world and see if they can start humanity over. So it really is a question, right? Do you reform the system or do you just blow up the system? Or, or I think there's a, a real question of do you keep the system for all of its horribleness and its child labor uh, and its, you know, feeding people in the back with only bars made of bugs? Is that better than everything else? Which is like, do you keep sort of global capitalism and all its horrors just because it's kind of the best option we have? And I think that we see that Curtis is tempted by that. I don't know if uh, he, uh, he I guess he decides to pull the child out, but only after what seems to be some real thinking about it. Well, and he also doesn't know at that moment, presumably he doesn't know that a bomb, a homemade bomb made of, of chronol, you know, made of the same, the same substance that they were using as a drug, is being affixed to the, the door out, right, the gate out of the train. And so there's essentially two climaxes happening at once. There's whatever is going to happen with Curtis pulling the kid out of the engine, and then there's the Korean engineer figuring out how to blow up the whole side of the train. And so then, poor CGI or not, I think that the ending to this movie is pretty spectacular, just visually spectacular. Yeah. And so what eventually happens is we can spoil it here, is that the explosion and the rescue of the kid happened at essentially the same time, right? The train goes spectacularly off the rails and goes hurtling into a deep canyon. You think that maybe no one is going to survive whatsoever. And then it becomes clear that at least two people have survived, right? The teenage daughter of the Song Kang-ho character and... Basically, all of the the actors from previous Bong Joon-ho movies are the ones that survive. Well, wait a minute. I don't think that that Song himself survives. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're completely right. Yeah, yeah. Timmy, who we haven't even mentioned. Uh, He's Octavia Octavia Spencer's son. Well, we've mentioned him in that he's the kid who's pulled out of the grinding gears, right? Right. And so at the very end, it's it's like the new Adam and Eve are basically a Korean teenager and an African-American kid making their way through this somewhat melting, not completely impassable snow, and they see a polar bear up in the distance on the mountains, meaning that life on Earth has in some 
way survived and that they're going to they're going to rebuild the world again. But it's very far from being any sort of optimistic ending, too. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's I don't there's, think a, even there's know a bleak whether... sense that we don't even know if they will make it. And, right. you know, if so, is there anything for them to eat? You know, and at any rate, the entire system of the train and all the other characters that we've come to care about over the course of this movie have now gone over a cliff. So I don't think we you answered my question entirely, which is, you know, pop quiz hotshot. There's a bomb on the train. It's a dystopian society. Do you blow up the train? Do you? I th- were you not interested in this question? I want to know what you would do. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think I would have. I think I maybe am more of a Curtis. Maybe I'm too conservative or something. I, I think the idea of losing all of these people who would be able to lead in the new world. You know, I mean, l- losing the Song Kang Ho and the Curtis character, the the two that really seemed like they had real leadership qualities after after Gilliam was out, seems like maybe a tactical mistake. <laughs> but but I appreciate that the movie and that Bong Joon Ho sort of affirmed. It's a movie that kind of affirms the radical, right? And it affirms the most radical solution to social problems. I came away thinking I'm not so sure. I, so going into the movie, you expect this is a movie about it's like, you know, Occupy the movie. It's a, it's a movie about the 99 percent rising up against the 1 percent and taking everything over. We know they're the heroes. And as the movie goes on, that becomes more complicated. So I came away thinking, you know, Maybe this isn't quite as affirming of, you know, radical ideas as I originally expected and in some ways comes closer to being uh, a conservative movie than almost any movie from this kind of genre. You know, it comes closer, I think, to thinking like, uh, Big Brother's kind of crazy, but... There's a lot of good to his system, too. I don't know. But doesn't it end by affirming just complete anarchy and just destruction? I mean, essentially, it's kind of a Stone Age solution, right? They're going back to the Stone Age at the end and starting everything from scratch, which I don't know if you'd call that a radically kind of left or right wing move. It's just pure radicalism. It's just like elimination of everything. Yeah. And we don't know whether they'll survive, which makes me think, I, you know, I, given the circumstances of the movie, I agree with them, I think that that was probably the best option. And yet I'm not entirely sure, which is not ex- how you expect to come away. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's, it's I don't think the very very ending that we're talking about, the two of them taking off in the snow left me so unsatisfied. But I would say that what happened between Ed Harris and Curtis in the engine was to me fairly unsatisfying. I mean, I think that those questions, those those ideological questions that were raised were never quite satisfactorily answered because it was all over too soon. I sort of wish this movie was 20 minutes longer. And there's this longstanding rumor that there are 20 more minutes to it, right. that Harvey Weinstein asked Wong to cut out, which is apparently not true. I think actually that this is the movie, the movie that was seen in Europe and Asia and everywhere. I feel like it could use a little bit more world building, character development, you know, places that these questions are, are played out. But so you don't think those questions were just left deliberately ambiguous, which is what I felt. I, I mean, I don't I didn't want it to answer those questions any more than it did. I guess I just wanted it to. Play I was satisfied. Out. Yeah, I guess I just wanted I, I wanted the, the significance of those questions to the characters to play out a little bit more. But still, for all of these reservations, you would pretty much unreservedly send somebody to see Snowpiercer. Correct? Ab- absolutely. Yeah. And the fact that this movie is coming out the same weekend as Transformers, which is basically, this is, this is about as close as it gets to good versus evil at the box office, I think. Yeah, it is extremely satisfying, actually, that at the same time, this, you know, unbelievably sodden and bloated American Hollywood blockbuster is coming out. There's this movie that has kind of a different vision for what the summer action movie can be. And I mean, a really exciting one for any flaws that it may have. It's completely distinctive, completely in the voice of its director. And so I, send, I would, would send people to all of Bong's movies, but start with this one since it's coming out now. Well, Forrest, thanks for coming in to spoil Snowpiercer with me. Thanks, Dana. 
Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.